Hey everyone, you are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how they might shape how we think about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I am one of the principal investigators of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which, along with this podcast, is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. In this episode, titled Boasts of Love and Troilus and Crusade, I speak with Professor Holly Crocker about the pledges of love and the fickle hearts in Geoffrey Chaucer's famous poem. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm very pleased to have my colleague here at the University of South Carolina, Holly Crocker, join me today on the podcast. Holly is a professor of medieval and Reformation literature and culture here in the English department at USC. She got her PhD from Vanderbilt University in 1999, and prior to coming to USC, she taught English at the University of Cincinnati and at St. Lawrence University. She is the author of many articles and several books, among them Chaucer's Visions of Manhood and Medieval Literature, Criticisms and Debates, and most recently, she has completed a monograph titled The Matter of Virtue, Women's Ethical Action from Chaucer to Shakespeare. Today, Holly will be joining us to discuss Chaucer's very famous poem, Troilus and Crusader. Welcome to the podcast, Holly. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm super excited. Chaucer is a poet who perhaps some of the people listening don't know that much about. I mean, maybe they read a little Chaucer in high school, but maybe that was a while ago. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about Chaucer, just who he was, when he was writing, what his importance and influence on English literature and letters has been, and actually what your own interest is in Chaucer. Yeah, Chaucer, he is the most important English poet of the Middle Ages. He's born somewhere around 1340. He lived through plague, schism, and heresy, but he doesn't write about any of those topics. Instead, he's often known as the father of English poetry, mainly because he wrote in English. Chaucer makes English into a vehicle for art by writing poetry that he derived from Latin, but mainly French and Italian sources into English. So is he the first one to do that? He's the first one to do so with such dedication. He did all of this on the side. He was a bureaucrat, a diplomat. He was in royal service from a very young age. He is very much a poet of late 14th century London. He's a city poet in many respects. And that is why his Middle English is easier to read than that of some of his contemporaries, say Langland or the Pearl Poet, because he is from the capital. And his form of Middle English kind of won the dialect wars in terms of the history of the English language. What else to say is that what Chaucer was interested in doing, while you might have read him, is his friend collection, The Canterbury Tales, is what he's best known for today. Yeah, I read that in high school. For a kind of naturalism, com- comedic sense of human life. It's a poem about pilgrimage, but oh so many other things. 
But during his own day and the centuries following, he was best known for Troilus and Crusade. So was his influence on the language, I mean, was he kind of like Dante in the sense that, you know, the Florentine dialect ended up being what became Italian? Yes, and he's interested, um, certainly he and other poets of his age, in exploring how Middle English could carry certain kinds of, well, certain kinds of poetic forms and be an appropriate vehicle for certain kinds of aesthetic ideals. Middle English is, is pretty different. For me, it's a little bit intimidating. Now, do you recommend reading Chaucer in the original um, I do recommend reading it in the original, okay. um, but for people who are beginners, reading Middle English, it often goes better if you read Middle English aloud, um, so you can hear the cognates, and you can begin. How do you know you're pronouncing it properly? There is a fabulous website at Harvard, oh, okay. Harvard that will help you with your Middle English if you want to hear people reading Middle English, and if you want to see if you're getting it right. But even working through the lines, even if you have no idea how it sounds, you'll be amazed at how certain of those words begin to come into um, a kind of understanding for you. But if you are going to read it in translation, we're using a translation by George Pratt today, which is a, a very nice translation because it, it preserves Chaucer's stanza form. And there are others, including Middle English texts that are heavily glossed, i.e. gives you a lot of guidance on what certain words mean. And that's what I would recommend if people are starting out Middle English is an original version that is made for beginners, not the Riverside, has lots of lost words that help people who are learning to read Middle English. Okay, so don't read a translation, even though we'll be discussing a translation today, but read an annotated original. Got it. So why don't we start to talk about the poem, Troilus and Crusada. Can you just give us a brief overview of the poem? Troilus and Crusade is a poem that deals with the matter of Troy. It's set during the Trojan War. It focuses on two lovers, two characters, Troilus and Crusade. Troilus is a prince. He is a Trojan uh, prince. A Trojan yes. prince. He is one of the privileged um, kind of young men of Troy. He falls in love despite his doubts about love with Crusade. He sees her and falls in love at first sight. She is a widow. She has been abandoned by her father and left in the city. He has gone to the Greeks. He is Calthus. You will know him from other stories. He has left her without protection in the city except for her uncle, Pandarus. Troilus, when he sees Crusade, falls in love with her, goes to his bed, suffers for at least one book of the poem in his love for Crusade. She, by contrast, knows nothing about him or his affection until her uncle presents Troilus's suit to her and, over book two, seeks to convince her to grant her love to Troilus, which happens. The lovers consummate their affair in book three in a very important scene in which the tenderness and the beauty of their love Chaucer lingers over quite extensively. Before everything goes bad. Yeah, yeah. starts to take a downward turn. Starts to take a, a different turn. The parliament decides to make a trade with the Greeks, a war prisoner trade. They were going to trade Crusade for Antenor. Despite some protest, uh, Hector famously rejects this idea. The parliament agrees to send Crusade to the Greeks in exchange for Antenor. Troilus does, says nothing in her defense. He goes back home to bed to suffer and he says he will die. The lovers reunite. They have a kind of tearful parting. They seek to figure out what they might do in the face of this. And in, it's a kind of comfort to Troilus. Crusade promises she will return to him. She says, I will elude my father. I will escape the Greeks and I will come back. Now, why he 
believes this or thinks this is possible. This is one of the questions of the poem. But she goes to the Greeks, and obviously, as soon as she gets there, she realizes she neither can come back, nor maybe does she even want to. She is pursued by another Greek champion, Diomed. He is much more cunning, much more scheming than Troilus, insofar as he, at least more transparently, views Crusade as a war trophy. In other words, he wants Crusade because he knows she's Troilus' beloved and he seeks to seduce her, therefore. And so she never comes back to Troilus. Troilus, when he sees that by certain signs, she gives Diomed a token, a brooch, and when Troilus sees this, he knows that she's betrayed him. And it was a brooch that he gave her, maybe? Yes, yes. that's right. So it's yeah. his, and he, he recognizes it as a love token that he gave to her. So this is one of those direct homosocial kind of, kind of competitions, and Troilus loses. He becomes ferocious in battle, but as a consequence, he dies. But we're told at the end of the poem that he ascends beyond human spheres of love, and he laughs at the follies of mortals and all of us who are left behind. Yeah, in the end, he's able to laugh at himself. I, I really like that. Okay, so why don't we step back for just one second and talk about some of the cultural background that Chaucer is bringing to this story. As you've mentioned, we have kind of the Homeric epic tradition, because we're talking about the Trojan War. The Trojan War itself, of course, was started over an adulterous love affair. But another tradition that maybe people are less familiar with is the courtly love tradition. And since you're an expert on this, maybe you could tell us just a little bit about the courtly love tradition and how Chaucer is using it. Courtly love is a French tradition, or it's a tradition that began with Provençal poets, so what we would think of as a French tradition, in about the 11th century with troubadours, trouvères, and poets who wrote plays. It is a tradition that posits love as frustrating. A lover uh, loves a distant beloved who is thought to have all the power in their relationship. So the beloved lady, this changes the traditional gender dynamic, is pursued by the suffering lover who proves his fidelity by suffering for as long as it takes to win her. And she can impose whatever demands she wishes. And what does it mean to win her? Is it sex in the end? or In many stories it is sex. So one of the kinds of things about courtly love is often thought to be an illicit form of love. It is one that happens outside the bounds of marriage. It's often secret, which you see in Troilus and Crusade, and perhaps socially taboo or something that runs against certain kinds of religious proprieties. Now, And the original, earliest iterations of courtly love, it didn't necessarily involve sex. It just involved a kind of favor or a kind of sympathy. And you see Crusade being pressured to grant Troilus a kind of pity in book two and into book three. And she knows what panderous means by that, by this point, that he means sex. But there are other stories in which that's not what it means. So by the time Chaucer is using this tradition, there is some cynicism about its lofty terms, that this could just be about the exchange of adorations and that what people in these kinds of relationships are really after is sex and a kind of power play between man and woman. Also skepticism by scholars whether this actually empowers women, that women are adored, set on pedestals, set to be in control of certain kinds of relationships, but they are also presented as objects uh, of male desire and their ability to maneuver or to have their own sets of desires is itself limited. It's a masculine kind of love. 
kind of glad that we ditched the courtly love tradition. So the other influence that it's probably helpful to have on the table is that of Boethius. Boethius is an, is an interesting figure. I think most people, if they've heard of Boethius, which is already doubtful, they will know about his consolation of philosophy. So can you just tell us a little bit about Boethius and his relationship to Chaucer? Uh, Boethius is a late ancient poet. Slash philosopher. Slash philosopher, putatively Christian, and his consolation of philosophy is a prison narrative in some respects, or prose and poetic narrative, in which goddess philosophy advises the imprisoned Boethius on how to bear up under the tyranny of fortune and under the kinds of violence and oppression that occur in a life a mortal life that is riven by a kind of contingency and is dominated by transitory things. So he's advised to give up worldly concerns and to focus on an intellectual life, a life of philosophy, and to receive a kind of understanding of the limitations of those things he has hitherto desired. Right, so just to be clear, Boethius lands in prison because he does the right thing. So one of the things that Boethius is exploring in the Consolation of Philosophy is this ancient philosophical thesis that virtue, especially justice, is supposed to benefit you. It's somehow supposed to be essential to living a good life. Now, Boethius finds himself in a position that puts a lot of pressure against this thesis because now he's done the right thing, the just thing, but the people in power are angry with him and they're going to ruthlessly execute him for being just. So Lady Philosopher comes to him to remind him what really matters, that is to say what he really ought to love, which transcends this world. So now there are two women in the constellation of philosophy. There's Lady Philosophy, she's the personification of wisdom, and then there's, by contrast, Lady Fortune. And wisdom is this eternal, unchanging, stable, and truly fulfilling sort of thing, whereas fortune is unconstant and fleeting and untrustworthy, and you shouldn't put your heart in that. So I think this is important because one reading of this poem worth considering is that what Troilus learns throughout the poem, by the end of the poem, what he's come to see is that he shouldn't put his heart in the fortunes of these earthly loves. You know, his love for Cressida is is an earthly, fleeting sort of love, but a love that is eternal and unchanging. So I think that all of this is very much in the background of Chaucer's mind as he's writing Troilus and Crusader. So I wanted to bring it up for that reason. Now, obviously, before he comes to wisdom, as it were, and realizes that he shouldn't put his heart in earthly things, earthly loves, he does fall in love. (laughs) He falls rather dramatically in love with Crusader, and that's the stuff of book one. So maybe we could talk about that now. He sees Crusader at the temple, and this scene is one that shows us love as an outside force that overwhelms or penetrates the will-be lover. And this is particularly satisfying in Charles's case because he's been not that great about love. He has made fun of other people. He's scoffed at lovers. He said he doesn't want to be a lover, so he's sought to avoid love. He has characterized it as belittling. Yeah, he clearly thinks it's beneath him. Yeah, he thinks it's beneath him. And when he enters the temple... With his mates, he's got a posse kind of with him, and they are looking up and down. It says his gaze rose wherever he wants it to go. And he is struck 
dumb by Crusade's magnificent appearance. And he can do nothing. There's this wonderful line where he's like a snail and his little horns kind of shrink in. Uh-huh. And he just has to go to bed. Love here is a malady. It's like a disease. It's an overwhelming kind of power. The poem says this will be a warning to those of you who avoid love. It will get you in the end. And then we watch him begin to suffer and to change. Right. So I think what's really interesting, and actually like pretty Greek, uh, this, this is a pretty Greek idea, but it's also, I think, a, a real human phenomenon. I think the Greeks were on to some bit of reality here is that he's, he's smitten, he's bitten by Eros, and he's humbled by it, but it, it's not chosen. It's not like he's on the make and so he goes to the temple thing, you know, like the way some guys might cruise a bar. Like, you know, he just, he's not chosen at all. It hits him with great force, and all that it takes is a look. So there's this idea that love comes by vision and that what, what ignites it, as it were, is an object that's grasped as beautiful in some sense. And Crusade, from all we know, was, was quite beautiful physically. He's totally bitten by love and it overwhelms him. And Chaucer, when he describes this kind of vulnerability or susceptibility to love, I think he, at least in my translation, describes it as the common fate of all, including the wise and the proud. But he also says, love binds all things. That's um, almost a literal translation of the Middle English line. Oh, okay. Yes. It's, it seems clear that there's something about love that's common and important and positive, and it does have this kind of transformative impact on Troilus. It changes him. So how, how does it change him? Paul goes on to say that he becomes a better person. So there's a protracted kind of chronicle of his suffering in book two, which for modern readers sometimes can seem a little ridiculous. But by the time we're talking about book three, he speaks better, he fights better, he's more courteous. It says he eschews vice. And there's a catalog of vices that he puts off. And so they're attributed to love and no Mm -hmm. other kind of power. And everything he does, he does in service instead of seeking glory. So there's a reorientation of what his aim is, is to serve rather than to gain renown. And this is all presented as a positive renovation of who he is. And we've been shown, you know, he was a proud, again, rich prince who could do pretty much whatever he wanted. And all he wants now is to serve others, to be courteous, to be humble, and to present himself in a way that might gain Crusade's favor. One thing that happens to people when they fall in love is that it truly does change them, but they now suddenly want to be desired by this person that they desire. So there's a worry about, well, he wants to be better insofar as he wants her. Yes. Which puts a little bit of pressure on the traditional conception of virtue, which is sort of like wanting the good for its own sake, you know? true. <laughs> and yeah. not for the sake of some further benefit. Mm-hmm. But there's also a question of this love. He's never spoken to her. True. For instance. For instance. He doesn't know if she's smart or nice or remotely interested in him, but somehow he has managed to just totally falls for her where... The object of his fixation and his desire is really just an image, right? Um, So he hasn't actually had any interactions with her that aren't simply visual. So there are all these questions about how the heiress gets going, but then there's also this question of, like, Troilus doesn't want anybody to know. He's very intent on concealing 
what's going on with him while it's happening, but certainly later. He's doing this typically masculine thing, hiding his feelings and not letting anybody see. So what, what is up with him not wanting anybody to know? So the only thing he knows about Crusade when he sees her is that she has a good reputation. And she's pretty. And she's pretty. And she is striking. She's dressed in black at the temple. She's a widow, so she looks a little different than everybody else who's in their festive gear. She is very self-possessed. So these things strike Troilus. The question about his sincerity or the superficialness of the kind of love he might develop for her is a valid one, especially given how he acts later. But in terms of early in the poem, what you see is that she actually is someone worth falling for. And so for Troilus to be kind of knocked over by her is Chaucer kind of giving credit to a heroine who's got a presentation that is not, she's not waiting to be courted no, by, absolutely by a knight. So this is an interesting and actually disarming feature of her character that Chaucer has emphasized here. So if we're focusing on Troilus, yeah, he probably has a problematic conception of love from the outset. Mm-hmm. But one of the things is, interesting even about the poem as that's put put into play is that the heroine he actually settles on she is not one-dimensional in the way that you might expect so there's the secrecy he doesn't want anybody to know his feelings but there's also the fact that and there may be sort of resonances here with the consolation of philosophy he describes himself as her prisoner he describes himself in a way in which she completely dominates him She dominates his dreams. She's overtaken his imagination, his thoughts, his desires, his reasons for acting and being. There's also a lot of just prison imagery of like chains and whips. Um, You know, there's, there's like all of this domination imagery. And then there's, I guess, what's called Troilus's song. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could talk about what he says about love and, and his song. So if love is nothing, why do I feel this kind of suffering or pain? Or if it is supposed to be the source of good, why am I suffering right. in this way? <laughs> it's so this? great. Why is it hell? Yeah, these are the questions he asked. One of the aspects of this kind of love is that it's predicated on suffering. You prove your worth and your seriousness as a lover and your fidelity by suffering, your willingness to undergo this kind of suffering. So the prison imagery is part of this kind of tradition. You're undertaking something that's hard. Love becomes its own kind of quest. It becomes its own kind of ordeal that you're willing to undertake. And the, the kind of the trap that love is, or the prison that love is, is a test of endurance. Um, and it's a test supposedly meant to show that you're not superficial, that you're not just trying this on and mm-hmm. scoping out this woman or that woman, that you're really willing to feel pain in her service. And the suffering is supposed to be for the beloved. How does that work? There does seem to be, I mean, just speaking in a very general way, if we think about love, we do think about sacrifice and suffering. If you love someone in a deep way rather than a superficial way, then presumably you are willing to undergo suffering for them. But it usually takes the form of doing stuff for them. Sure. Maybe stuff you really don't want to do, you know. Yeah. But like in this case, it seems like really internal. Like I'm just in my room moaning. That is what he's doing. <laughs> Wanting yeah. to die, but it's not like he's, I don't know. Like, yeah, is suffering as fascination? 
in some ways, and it's a self-centering suffering. It's all internalized, so that right. it's, oh, I hurt, and I really hurt. Right, I really, really hurt, and I can't get myself <laughs> out of this, and I'm helpless. But the helplessness is itself titillating to a certain extent. Right. Well, yeah, because he does describe, so he says on the one hand, this is the translation, oh, living death, but then he says, oh, grief, so sweet and quaint. Like, it's bitter, sure, but it's also sweet. So it's the prison that you want but do not want to get out of is the kind of motif that we're talking about here. Again, Troilus means this to prove that he's a serious lover, but the formulaicness of it for many is hard to get around, and I think a lot of readers rightly kind of see this as potentially a joke, this part of the poem that Troilus is almost ridiculous. Yeah, there is something obviously yeah. ridiculous about yeah. it. That he would take this on and we're like, oh, God, please, he's not doing anything. He right. Can't, you know, and that it is wholly a self-centering kind of process. He's not trying to go find Crusade. He's not really trying to approach her. It's pretty juvenile in the way that he really can't even get out of bed. And right. he can't even tell Pandarus when Pandarus approaches him and says, you know, I can help you out of this woe. He claims to be too far gone. It would have been a much shorter poem if he were right. right you know? It's not clear he wants to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's something a little, I, I don't know. I mean, I hesitate to say enjoy, but I mean, there's, he's kind of into it in a way. He is into it. So Troilus does kind of thank the god of love for this passion that's overtaken his heart. But then he makes this kind of vow or pledge, and he pledges to pay homage to his lover. So he says that as her man, it was interesting that he puts it that way, since it already presupposes that he is her man, I shall live and die. And I'm just curious, like, what sort of pledge or vow is this? He's affiliating himself. It's almost like a, a system of livery. He's signing up to be part of her entourage or her, you know, he is her courtier now. He will fight in her honor. Everything he does is supposed to accrue or be recast as a product of her agency. And there are some huge squabbles among scholars about whether these kinds of contests and affiliations actually happened at courts. There are these said to be these courts of love. And where you like where you where knights were some kind yeah, of yeah. jousting and these visual kinds of exchanges of tokens and so that courtly love itself became a courtly game. And it's hard to know if the poetry arose from this or if or if the games themselves reflected some of the poetry and if it was all just an elaborate kind of right. a scene of enjoyment. But what you see by the time you get to Chaucer, Troilus, it's a way of suggesting that the traditional heroic warrior can do nothing if he's struck by love. So it's this kind of warrior hero tradition and the pleasure of watching him lay completely low uh, by the power of love. So it is not just a play-acting knight who's going to joust in Crusade's honor. He's actually going to go fight war right. in, you know, in her name or in, to impress her. So that's book one, Falls in Love, and presumably Crusada holds all the cards here. So book two puts a lot of pressure on this. So in book two, we have the introduction of this third character, Pandar. He's a strange character, but he's like the intermediary. And I think in the courtly love tradition, there's typically an intermediary. It's yeah, like a go-between between the two lovers. So now we have this back and forth between Troilus and Crusade via Pandar. Maybe you could talk about how that plays out a little bit, and what comes of it. Pandarus is Crusade's uncle, also Troilus's friend. He is worried about Troilus because he is so helpless. He's a mess. He, yeah, yeah, he's a mess. He's struck helpless in his bed, and he promises to help him with whatever it, his malady is. He tells him he's beyond help. 
Pandarus offers basically his service, and he will tell him, and Pandarus is very happy to learn that, that Troilus has settled his affections on Crusade, in part because she is worthy, he claims, but also because it's his niece. And he says, oh, I know her, she's my niece, I, I talk to her all the time, I can help you out with her. I think then proceeds, he's going to present Troilus' suit to Crusade, but what you see is a lot of rather sketchy behavior on his part and really kind of manipulation uh, potentially he doesn't just say Troilus he's a great warrior he is a, a prince of great renown and repute he loves you he really pressures her to show him pity is what he says or to show him a kind of uh, a kind of favor and yeah he's laying it on yeah. really thick he tells her that if she doesn't accept Troilus's love that Troilus will die and then then that will hurt the war effort and um, it will be her fault and it basically will be her fault, and if people come to know why he died then they will blame her it's like honestly to me reading it I felt like it was emotional blackmail yes and the fact that he's also supposed to be sticking up for her in this domain he's her her closest male relative the guy she's supposed to look to for guidance, and she even tells him this. She said, if I had chosen to love, or if I picked somebody, you would have scorned me. You would have scolded me for being loose and told me that this was inappropriate behavior. So she's a little scandalized by his behavior, but it's not much she can do. To be fair to Crusade, and I think his behavior is frankly scandalous. So if you look at page 54 of the translation, and I have the, the Modern Library Classics edition, it's not only that he says... Oh, you're going to kill this guy if you don't reciprocate these feelings of love. But if you bid him die, you take my life. For hear this pledge, dear niece, I ratify that I will cut my throat with this knife. And it's like, well, that's crazy. So not only are you telling her, well, if you don't go for this guy, you're going to kill him. Also, I'll just slit my throat right here in front of you. I mean, that's crazy. And then he accuses her of careless cruelty, that his death is at your hands. And it's all for her beauty, as at first as if her beauty is, you know, of her manufacturer, but then secondly, as if she's responsible. Mm-hmm. She's um, going to tell herself that she is into, later you'll see her, she w- walks around and paces it out and says, you know, I'm an independent woman, I can do what I want, I can love or I cannot love. And she is independent, she's a widow, she has her own means, though at the same time she's very vulnerable in the city without any kind of male protection. But you, what you also see is that's also a kind of self-justification. She says, I can love who I want, I can love if I choose. But she, she's already basically come to this decision of loving Charlotte. So she has capitulated, and then you see her making it right with herself in terms of her own will and her own choice. Right? Right. She claims that it is her will and her choice to have done this, but this comes after you see Pandora's lay it on as thickly as he does and manipulate her. It may be true that from her first-person perspective, she feels like... It's her choice, but there are somewhat objective criteria for whether you're actually coerced, whether you yourself recognize it or not. And I personally, I mean, I don't know what Chaucer's perspective is, but like for me reading this, I'm thinking, wow, it's really not clear to me that this is a fully informed free choice. The way it's presented to her is that it is her duty to accept the love of a worthy man who's dedicated himself to her. And that is one of the problems of courtly love, is that if you set courtly love up as something that focuses mostly on a man's perspective and what he needs to do to win a woman's love, her main responsibility in that kind of relationship is ultimately to accept him. So once he proves himself worthy, that's what she's meant to do. So for a woman who wanted nothing to do with it, 
Pandora, Pandora certainly didn't imagine that as a possibility. Right. And neither does Paul. And you see Crusade going, going through the same kind of thing. She's like, well, there's nothing to keep me. He is worthy. And wouldn't I be doing a disservice to myself and to others if I harmed him in any way? And she seems to accept this view of what women are supposed to do when worthy men love them. Right. And she even speaks on page 70 of gratitude for love. Yeah. And then she has this subsequent pledge to love on page 72. And she even says at one point, you know, anybody who says that love is wrong or that it's slavery, then he's nothing less than envious. But of course, that's funny or ironic because it's exactly how it's presented all throughout book one is a kind of slavery and domination. And also um, following on that is this really famous, rightly so, dream of called the Exchange of Hearts dream, where she dreams that her heart gets ripped out by a bird of prey. So, oh, wow. um, you know, and replaced with another heart. So there's this kind of way that love is invasive, is violent. If she's imagining herself ripped open by it and another heart being in place of her own, her control over that situation is, is really very minimal. I guess where to start in book three? I mean, this is when they consummate their affair, obviously, as you said. There's a lot leading up to that. Doesn't he formally present this request to serve her and she accepts it? Yes. So is that is that just a convention of courtly love? It is a convention insofar as he's offering himself. That particular exchange, yes, you see that happening where knights offer themselves to ladies and ladies accept them, um, whether or not the women been pressured into doing so, as you might say about Crusade. Right. I mean, we might have felt a lot better about book three if book two just hadn't happened. happened. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And what you see, too, is Pandarus uses her presence at a dinner as a way of getting them together and Mm -hmm. sort of um, sneak off. She's there to ask for protection from the warriors of the city from Hector. So she knows there's this kind of real-world dimension of her life in which she's vulnerable. She needs men to pledge their fidelity to her. And then you've got this really powerful guy pledging his fidelity to her in this private moment, which at this point in the poem seems to be the more important pledging. turns out it's not, or it turns out that it means less than what Troilus presents it as meaning. But it's a very weird parallel between what she really needs, which is men to stick up for her, and an offer of a man who's going to serve her supposedly to his death. Mm-hmm. And the, the emptiness of that when it comes time. This is the moment where Chaucer presents courtly love at its most reciprocal. They exchange vows. They exchange pledges. They mm-hmm. have this kind of mutually fulfilling relationship. They're said to make each other better and to be grateful in each other's presence. They're both very happy. Um, that's the way that book three, when it brings them together, it supposedly does so in ways that fulfill both of them. So if either of them had doubts before, all of that's dismissed as this was good for both of them. That very quickly goes wrong, but this is the moment in the poem where Chaucer pauses just to let that part of the relationship unfold and to affirm the possibilities of this kind of love. Yeah, so there are two things here that I think are really interesting. One is that you have throughout the poem, but particularly in book three, as you say, pledges, vows almost, Mm -hmm. promises of love. And at the same time, you have Pandar, who's this curious figure, but he speaks of boasts of love, mm-hmm. which love alone can measure. I think that's really striking because there is this question. I think these pledges are, are sincerely made, but there's a question of their substance yeah. in both cases, because 
there's real questions about what Troilus is really willing to do for Crusade, given everything that we know about him. And there's real questions about how much she genuinely loves him, given everything we know about her, but even the broader context, Mm -hmm. that she is vulnerable, that she knows full well that she's vulnerable, that she knows she needs the protection of men. Does she really want to offend, alienate the prince? I don't know. I mean, I'd be pretty scared of doing that. So there's that. But then I think there's also, and again, this is really Greek, there is the fact that When their love is consummated and they are actually united, they do experience, I think, a real genuine ecstasy. That is the goal of Eros. It's ecstasy. Eros is this longing, this reaching out, this striving for the beloved, no matter what that object of love is. And then when you actually have union with it, it's ecstatic. Yes. And they do experience that ecstasy. And so that, in some sense, is a sign that it's real to a certain extent. But then there's also this lingering question. I mean, I think, you know, there's something a little bit brilliant about the setup because on the one hand, like Chaucer wants to acknowledge that there's something real there. It's not like they have bad sex or something. Yeah, absolutely. It's not. <laughs> they don't. No, they don't. Pearl um, swoons. They still come yeah, together. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally ecstatic and amazing. Then on the other hand, there's this question about the boasts of love, which love alone can measure. And so it's a question of what happens after the ecstasy, right? And here we get some hints, I think maybe from both sides. I mean, on the one hand, there's this theme throughout the poem, which I'm really interested in, because I think it picks up on something like really real about human beings. I mean, we've already seen the ways in which Troilus's love is self-centered in like really obvious ways. But for Criseta, we get these little hints all along from Chaucer that what she's really in love with is his love for her. So it also has this self-referential character. So, you know, she longs again to have him in such plight that she alone may bring him delight. So she's very captivated by the fact that she is the beloved, that she's she's really driving him mad. Mm -hmm. And I think she kind of gets off on that. This is true. And um, she's also never saw herself as having this kind of capacity. And when it's given to her. She is surprised and delighted by the kind of person. When you see yourself through someone else's eyes and you're better than you thought you might be, Right. I think there's this kind of moment of pleasure for her. Absolutely. Um, and so part of her pleasure of being with him is that someone could be that dedicated to her and someone of such note and worth could be dedicated to her in that way. So right. She, yeah. Part of what the lover wants is to be wanted. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's it's very human. This is the book, I think, that shows that this kind of love might be true, but also fleeting, or true, but something that's easily subject to ruin, right? So that you can actually do both. It's not that it needed to be superficial, or that it needed to be shallow from the beginning for right. it to go wrong. Right. It actually could have this kind of ecstasy, this successful consummation, and do everything it's supposed to be, do, but then yet still be lacking or not enough or that it be easily destroyed, right? So right. all of those things that the rest of the poem shows. So you don't have to have an untrue crusade who's a schemer. Um, right. You don't have to have a shallow or even undedicated Troilus who never really meant it. Right. They go, both could be true, and right. yet all go wrong nevertheless. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I think, I think that, well, one, I think that's really right. But two, I think 
that there's this important difference between falling in love is the beginning of something, but something that might very quickly end or lead to complete disaster for both parties. And in book four, we get a lot of, we get more pledges of love. And there's a lot of talk of eternal love. There's a lot of swearing to God that it's forever and you know, nothing can harm it. And of course, you're sort of reading it and you're like, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you sort of know. Again, it's like you keep hearing this thing from Pandar about posts of love. It's like, I don't know. Maybe it's not eternal. And I don't know how much you want to dwell on book four. I think what you see uh, in book four with the kind of way that war intervenes in the story. So is, is book four where... She is bartered away. Yes. To the Greeks. Okay. Yes. Um, what you see in book four is the kind of, you know, all this pledging, all of this promises of fidelity. He wants to save her. Hector is the one who objects to her trade. Troilus is there. and Now, uh, Hector is Troilus's older brother, yes. right? Yes. And, you know, he is the glorified public war hero and the champion. Um, and he's the one who sticks up for her and says, we don't trade women. This is not, we don't comport ourselves in this way. Because we don't sell women, we don't trade women. And Charles stays silent. He doesn't go to crusade afterwards. He goes back to his own bed. Um, and so she doesn't even know that this has happened until later. So he doesn't even tell her. So this is when you start to see that, wait, this kind of his sorrow, his suffering, and the way he reacts to it is not directed towards her, or he would immediately go to her right after this horrible thing happens, and that's not what happens. And so it's almost comic. Right. He becomes, again, like a dead man, and Panders has to talk him you know, right. into something. Yeah, he's all swooning. Yeah, again. And also I think it, it starts to bring out the fact that his love for her is this very secretive, private thing, yeah. right? He, he kind of carries it in his heart and nowhere else. Mm-hmm. And it's totally divorced from an actual human context, that is to say, like, the world, the way things are, the socio-political order of things. It's really just this thing that's entirely internal to him. And so looked at in that way, maybe it's not surprising that he doesn't actually stick up for her when she actually becomes part of the geopolitical happenings. But it's also a sign that there's something wrong with this kind of love. Because he says, you know, I'm going to do anything for you. Well, here's your chance. Yeah. And he doesn't. And he doesn't. Later in the same book, Pandarus tells him to carry her off. He says, you should basically, you know, take her, kidnap her, run. Right. And he says, oh, she'll never do that. Yeah. And then he also, at some moments, says, you know, well, it's to protect you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's actually in your best interest that I not do anything for you. Yeah. Kind of makes that move. Yeah. He says he doesn't want to damage her name. That's right. Several times. That's right. In ways that you, you kind of wonder how her being traded to the Greeks as a war prisoner is going to not damage her. Yeah. It's a suspicious move. Does Diomede come in at book four? It's really almost the opening of book five when he sees this exchange. He sees the kind of looks between Charles and Crusade. And he's a canny reader, and he looks, and he kind of goes, ah, oh, there's something there. Well, I think people in love have a pretty hard time hiding it. Yeah. You know, it's always in the eyes. So he knows that he can get something over on Troilus by setting his sights or his attentions on Crusade. Right, so he's cunning. This was just like a literary trope, which makes sense because lots of people in, in reality fit this mold, but he's cunning. Yep. He sees this love. He sees 
vulnerability, mm-hmm. right, that he can exploit. Yes. And so he's coming to Crusade in a predatory, calculative yep. way. The thing that's unsettling about his suit and the way he presents it to her is it's almost, except for what you know about his motives, what you do, but in terms of form, it looks exactly like what Charles presents to her. Right. He's worthy. He'll give her protection. Right. He will serve her. Right. He uses all the right language, or the sort of same sort of formula of knight and service to her. She is in need of protection, he says. You know, he says he knows all of these things. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he's been more forthright about it. Like, mm-hmm. I, I can give you these things, and he promises to serve her. So the unsettling thing about him is that we already know he's doing it for an insincere reason, mm-hmm. but it looks exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think he's actually better positioned to actually do the things he says mm-hmm. he's going to do. Yeah. So there's this interesting contrast, you know, because Trellis, who really is in love, you know, sort of hopelessly in love, says he's going to do all these things, and then it turns out, like, isn't capable of doing them, really. But then you have this cunning seducer who really can protect her, but protect her for him. You know, it serves his ends. So she's completely instrumental. For him. For him. Yeah. Certainly. And Troilus is leveled by this. He's writing this crusade, trying to, when she doesn't show up, he's watching at the walls, hoping that she'll come back. And he takes this as a complete betrayal, not that just she couldn't get here. Right. And so does Pandarus. They, they both condemn her. They see this as a failure, as a betrayal on her part, not just something that she couldn't control. Are they being unfair to her, or is there something in that complaint? Because this actually was a question for me as a reader. It's like, where is Crusade at this point? One way of reading the poem, and I don't know that it's the correct reading, is just that she's a little fickle. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's fair? I think that it is a venerable critical tradition for a reason. Like, it's, it's you know, it's a totally reasonable conclusion to come to that blames her early and late for the problems in the poem. But I think what is interesting that is that in between, Chaucer shows us a much more complex heroine. She's not just a fickle betrayer. You right. Get, you get that in Shakespeare with his Cressida and with other 16th century versions of this character are far more cunning, far more felicitous. They take greater pleasure in the pains that they cause. So you, you see different versions of Crusade where she's, Chaucer doesn't present her this way. You know, she loses her resolve. I like to just to see it as a, a, a failure of will. So it's a failure. It doesn't mean that it's an intentional betrayal. Uh-huh. Um, so she is frail. She is a failed character. Doesn't mean that she's... She's also probably afraid. Absolutely. I mean, she's reunited with her father, but she's still... The conditions of her existence in the Greek camp are even more precarious than they were in the city of Troy. So her father doesn't take him to be a great asset by the Greeks, but he's also taken to be somebody who they have to, to watch, right? He's not, he's not an honored member of the community or anything of that sort. So I think by the time you get to her letter, however... You know, she basically says, you know, I'll come when I can. Which means I will, I will never I'm come. Totally not exactly. coming. <laughs> um, you know, he's writing all of these, please come, I'm your beloved, etc. Mm-hmm. And she just writes him this very short reply. It's a little cold. It's too. a little cold. Yeah. She says she knows that he's true. She doesn't know when she'll come. She'll come when, when she has the time, when she can. Mm-hmm. And again, this, is a, this shows that... For anybody else reading it besides Troilus, this is over. She's attached herself to somebody else. She's Her affection has moved, and she has moved on, and this is crushing to him. To be fair to Crusada, I think she herself is a little torn. Yeah. She acknowledges that she made all of these 
pretty dramatic vows and pledges that she's obviously not going to keep. And I think she does genuinely feel bad about Mm -hmm. that. She knows she's ruined by the the poem. She even says, I'll be spoken about in this way for a long time to come, and women will hate me most of all. Like She knows what she's done will happen. Well, why will women hate her most of all? She's going to bring all the renown of all women into disrepute, which ironically is actually what happens in this with this poem if you look at his later life. Oh, right? really? Yeah, yeah. All later crusades are way worse than this one. And, oh, you know, okay. Robert Henderson gives her leprosy and makes her into a prostitute and all kinds of stuff. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so she's got a pretty storied downfall after Chaucer in terms of literary history. But what you see with this is she seems to know that in betraying the guy, like Pandora's predicted, she will bear the blame, and whether or not she meant to. So she seems to just take that Or whether or not it's fair. Whether or not it's fair. She just takes that on. What I don't think is fair to her, you asked me, do I think this is fair? I think she's a failed character. I think she shows weakness or a failure of will. But what I don't think is fair is Pandora's and Troilus and the narrator they all get angry with her. They hate her. Pandora says he hates her most of all. Well, that's really rich coming from him. Exactly. So, I mean, so the kind of judgment and punishment they wish upon her, uh-huh. as a consequence, they have no compassion or uh-huh. understanding to say, oh, well, maybe she couldn't come, or maybe her father intervened, or maybe she needs protection there in the same way that you know, she needed it here. Or maybe warrior lovers don't really look as different as we want them to. You know, we think right. they do because we all love Charles. Do you think that Chaucer wants us to hate Crusader? No. What do you think his perspective is? I think he made a complex, flawed, and highly sympathetic uh, heroine. Somebody who had experience in the world and whose uh, moral failings are on display, but who is, I think, what he shows us is what happens to people who are good in circumstances that are overwhelming. So I think that's completely genuine in this poem. So I think that his crusade remains absolutely compelling. Mm-hmm. There's never a moment where, you know, even when the narrator gives up on her, and so mm-hmm. there's lots of, of kind of addresses and asides and this kind mm-hmm. of scorn. I don't think the poem does. She knows she has to bear the blame, even if it's an unfair kind of judgment. I want to return back to... The end of book five and the influence of Boethius on Chaucer. As you mentioned in the beginning, Troilus dies in battle. So then he's kind of looking at things subspecie eternitatis and and kind of seeing the whole in the way that... So he's transcended this very limited, Mm self-pitying, frustrated perspective. And now he, he sees like the wider context and he's able to laugh at himself. Which I think is really great because humor and telling jokes and laughing at yourself, that's a very human thing. It takes reason, actually, because you have to be able to step back and critically look on things and notice, like, actually, they're pretty funny. So he's able to laugh at himself and kind of his own folly. And so Troilus has this recognition at the end that he really was not a hero who died tragically, but there's something actually pretty, pretty funny and that he was given over to folly in some sense. But that depends on this idea that there is a transcendent perspective. There is something higher than this kind of profane love between mm-hmm. Troilus and Crusader. I do think he turns to that higher form of love at the end to say, with all this worldliness, it will pass. Um, Which is love of God. Yeah, correct. Love of yes. God, yeah. Basically says, love Christ, he will not betray you in the same way. I don't think that's because 
the kind of love that he shows, particularly in book three, is superficial mm-hmm. or untrue. I think it's because it's easily destroyed by other forces in the world. Mm-hmm. So if you set this kind of love in a theater of war, it's going to be overrun, overcome, and undone. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't beautiful, it wasn't fragile. It's just, it is not impervious in the same kind of way that the higher love that he's describing at the end is, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of people look at this kind of you know higher love and they say, oh, look, compare this love to this worldly love and the mm-hmm. one falls short. Well, it's not that it falls short because of any inherent flaw within it, except for that it exists in the world right. rather than above the world, right? Yeah. And so it's the other forces that destroy it that are the problem in this poem. I think Chaucer admires the kind of earthly profane love that Poseidon and Troilus achieve, but then he watches what happens when the world gets comes back into it. But do you think that it's completely because of the world, or are there certain pathologies, not within human love, mm-hmm. um, because I think that, that human love, that when done properly, it can really be this incredibly beautiful, fulfilling thing that brings you like real joy and happiness. Now, it's still going to be unstable because humans are finite and you're just going to die. Mm-hmm. At some point, your lover is going to break your heart just by dying. Yes. But it does look like things are nevertheless a little bit off. So, so the war and the problematic context, and even Pandar to a certain mm-hmm. extent. And so there are these external things that are constraining it in various ways. But I also kind of wonder if there just wasn't something messed up from the beginning with Troilus in particular. Yeah. I mean, I actually don't think that the main problem was Crusader. I thought it was Troilus um, because he is putting all of his hope in her, which I feel like is an unfair thing to do to a person. I certainly like when you Because no person is going to totally fulfill it, and that's not fair of them. I mean, I don't want to be the end all be all for anyone. Like, I would love to be like, I will give you everything that I can. And like, yes, you think I'm really great. And that's awesome. But like, I don't want to be it because I'm obviously going to fail that. I am going to totally fulfill no one and don't really want to take on that role. And I think that insofar as he was putting Crusader on that pedestal, that's not really fair to her. I think he puts her on that pedestal. Because he wants to be all of that to her. Mm. So it's this kind of conception of, if I elevate you, I elevate myself through this kind of love. And you're right, it's, that is, is not a way of going about this kind of love. But I also wonder if that is itself also bound up with this kind of heroic context in which achievement, a kind of glorified magnificence, is the goal of personhood mm-hmm. and so he wants to be the best lover and have the best beloved yeah and the same way that he wants to be the best warrior and the best fighter right. and the best prince it's like oh gosh please get off yeah. of all of that yeah um so you know the kind of humility that's supposed to come with courtly love doesn't really pan out in this poem i mean i think the extent to which we can say that falling in love with Crusader really did transform his character wasn't enough mm-hmm. or that the humility wasn't sufficiently deep because, and this really does actually bring it around to Boethius and the Constellation of Philosophy because it seems like the message at the end is not to love the world so much. It is. If we have a very Christian interpretation of the text, I don't know whether or not that's right, but if we do, then the human person is a pilgrim on a journey and the journey doesn't end in the world. 
the injunction at the end not to love the world so much is the exact same thing that Lady Philosophy is trying to convince Boethius in and the consolation. Because like ultimately the consolation is and philosophy supposedly teaches that this world is not actually where your happiness is. And so another person in this world can't be the summum bonum, the highest good. And in a way, that's almost a recognition that it wasn't fair to put her in that role because nobody's going to do that for anybody else. We're just going to love you to the extent that we can as finite, limited humans in a world that's fallen and messed up. But we're not going to totally fulfill you in every sense. I, I always think that Crusader's biggest problem is that she lets herself be taken with the image of herself that Troilus presents, right? Yeah. This, but her downfall is not betrayal. It's just that she's not that. Right. That shouldn't be any huge revelation. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it is for all the male characters in this poem. You know what? That's so interesting that you say that because... A lot of people speak of Crusader's supposed untruthfulness, but there's a sense in which she's the one that actually comes to like self-knowledge. Yeah. You know? She knows what her limitations are. Yeah. Very intimately by the end of the five. You know, I mean, maybe she's the one who finally saw the truth of boasts of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Holly. This was really great. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy podcast that is part of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. To learn more about our project, you can check us out online at virtue.uchicago.edu or at the Virtue blog. That's thevirtueblog.com. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen. It helps us to be more visible to others. And if you know someone who desperately needs more literature and philosophy in their life, tell them to check us out.